You're listening to a People of Note podcast, as heard on Classic 1027. Good evening and welcome to People of Note on Classic 1027. I'm Richard Cock and this program is broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8. And in it I talk to someone who is a person of note and we listen to music of their choice. And I've got some great music in the lineup tonight and a great person of note. His name is Rob Kasky. Good evening, Rob. Good evening, Richard. Great to join you on your show. Thank you for the invitation. And thank you for being willing to be on it. And Rob is a storyteller, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. If, if I just say you're a storyteller, does that cover the whole story, Rob? <laughs> Richard, that's an interesting question. You know, I always say to folks who are going to introduce me that I'd far rather be introduced as a storyteller than an historian because I tend and have done for the last 22 years or so told stories about human beings in history when the chips are down and when things go wrong. But I never qualified in history. I qualified in agriculture at the University of Peter Maritzburg, Natal. And it was there, in fact, that my storytelling career, if anything, strangely began. Who were you telling stories to in those days? Your lecturers, why you were late? Well, there was quite a lot of that, Richard, which I think falls outside the gambit of this program because I'll compromise myself. <laughs> I let myself down badly traveling to various parts of Africa. There were even years where I missed exams and the lecturers took a very poor, dim view of it. But the bottom line is I was crazy about motorcycling and still am. And I did a lot of trips into various parts of Africa on a motorbike. And whenever I came back, there was always a group of people who wanted to hear what had happened on the bike, the experiences that I had been lucky enough to have on the motorbike. And that group of people eventually outgrew the little canteen where we used to have coffee and tea and a light meal at the agricultural faculty. So we moved out onto the banks around the car park in the shade of the trees. And unbeknown to me, the group of people grew and grew until there were quite a lot of people sitting there listening to me explaining my motorbike experiences. And unwittingly, I was developing in their minds the reputation of telling a reasonable story. And there were some incredible experiences on the bike where I hit an elephant once in the Caprivi Strip and I had issues with hyenas and lions in the Zambezi Valley and I had a terrible engine failure in the Zambezi Valley and had hitched to Harare, have parts shipped up to me from Pretoria, try and mend the bike, hoping the engine was complete, hitch with the engine back to the bike frame in the Zambezi Valley and find my way out. And thankfully, all these stories ended well. But the bottom line is that one of them became curator of the Rockstrip Museum, where David Rattray was the doyen of storytelling in South Africa and telling stories about his Juan and Rockstrip and other Zulu war battles. And he was looking for someone to help him telling stories on the Zulu war battlefields in 1999. And this chap, who I really didn't know, gave it some thought and it came to him, my telling stories about motorcycle journeys under the trees in Peter Maritzburg. And he said to David, I don't know where this guy is or what he's doing, but I think you could teach him the history if he were interested, but he tells a pretty good story. And he organized a meeting between David Rattray and myself. And that really is how this most unlikely, unprecedented career in storytelling began in the year 2000 in my mid-30s. Well, it's an amazing story in itself. Uh, and so literally that's where you started telling stories about the, the battlefields was under the tutelage, if you like, of David Rattray. Because in order to tell a story, you have to know the story. Well, look, uh, Richard, when I heard David Rattray telling these stories for the first time, I thought there was absolutely no way that I could try and emulate or substitute what he was creating. He was regarded as the finest storyteller of his age in the world by the British press. And there is no doubting that David Rattray at full chat doing a lecture on the battlefields was really a tour de force. And David was very persuasive. It took him a long time to convince me to at least give it a crack. And I was at a fairly low point in my life and thought I've got nothing to lose and a lot to gain if this works. And with encouragement from family and friends, I decided to try it on a clear three-month trial period where if after three months it wasn't working for David or myself, I could pull out. 
But coming back to your question, the study and the research required to have all the information in my mind before trying to share it in a fairly engaging and digestible fashion was an enormous hurdle. It was a bit like doing another degree. I thankfully have got a fairly good memory, but still, the studying and the reading and the research to try and assimilate the information before telling these stories in the footsteps really of David Rattray was a mountain to climb. Having said all that, David was unusually supportive and helpful and he had the most unusual knowledge and memory himself and helped me at every turn. And I think to learn at the foot of David Rattray, the great master, was an incredible privilege and I'm very grateful for those days before, as you well know, his very untimely murder in January of 2007. Yeah, it was very sad. But here comes your first choice of music. Since you were talking about your trips up Africa, this is by uh, Sanson. It's the famous Carnival of the Animals, and it's the Royal March of the Lions. That was the Royal March of the Lions from the Carnival of the Animals by Camille Sanson, the choice of Rob Caskey, who's my guest in People of Note. But I think, Rob, your storytelling has not only been about Zulu wars, because if I look at your, your CV, there are stories from all different parts of the world. The race to the pole, uh, the race to perhaps even the North Pole, the Anglo-Boer War, Spion Kop. Uh, what else do you talk about? I mean, there are lots of them. Richard, I've been very privileged. In 1993... I was lucky enough to join the Africa Odyssey expedition with Kingsley Holgate and we traveled across Africa. And on that expedition, besides finding Ethiopia, perhaps the most interesting country singularly in Africa, we were intrigued at the history of the Sudan. Now the Sudan and the Sudan campaign features very prominently in British military history. So I have researched quite extensively the Sudan campaign, the rise of the Mahdi and his Anzar or dervishes, the overthrow and the death of General Gordon and the capitulation of the Christians and all the expats in the Sudan, if they weren't Islamic, they were obliged to leave or fall to the sword of the Mahdi. So I tell a lot of stories about the Sudan. I've been there a number of times sharing those great battlefields and those stories, along with the reinvasion by the Anglo-Egyptian army with guests. I've always had a passion for Antarctica. And ever since I was a little kid, I've wanted to get to Antarctica. And when I was able to start researching the prices and the fares to get to Antarctica, I realized it was out of the question as a fair-paying passenger. So I made a conscious effort to start researching the stories of Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton, amongst others, particularly with the anniversaries coming up. You know, Amundsen attained the poll in December 1911. So December 2011 was that centenary. January 2012 was Scott's centenary. And then the centenary of Shackleton's famous endurance expedition was 2014 to 2016. And I knew that British interest would be at an all-time high and that if I could become proficient enough at sharing and telling those stories, I would hopefully be invited onto an expedition ship as part of the team to share these stories in Antarctica. And I've been fortunate enough to that end to have been going to Antarctica a number of times a year, every year since 2011. And because the teams tend to work in the Antarctic and the Arctic, it led to an invitation to share these stories in the Arctic, which I knew extremely little about. So I began to research the race for the North Pole, the race particularly to get through the Northwest Passage that joins the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans and that history. And then in it all, it's interesting to note how many guests and listeners are actually more interested in the background. What happened behind the scenes than what happened on the expeditions themselves or what happened on the battles themselves? So in it, I've learned a lot about the history of Antarctica, the history of the Arctic and Greenland and the Canadian Arctic, the Bering Sea. And in it all, having studied quite considerably now the history of South Africa, I've got a story I call a South African Odyssey, which is all the background history in our land leading up to the outbreak of the Anglo-Zulu and the Anglo-Boer Wars. And in it all, people always associate storytelling with campfires and sitting around a fire. So I've developed another story, which you may see on the list there, called Flickering Embers, which is really a collection, a miscellany of stories, 
with an essentially African theme, including those dear, brave black South Africans who sank with the SS Mendy in the English Channel in February of 1917. But they're the sort of stories that one would tell around a campfire. So if I sat down around a campfire and was given an hour of listeners' time, I would tell a miscellany of stories, not in any particular order. And somewhere in all that really lies pretty much the repertoire of the stories I tell today, Richard. That's fantastic. Now, uh, since you were talking about sort of Northeast Africa, Sudan and Egypt, I'm going to play a bit of African Sanctus by David Fanshaw because he spent some time in that part of the world and he had some stories to tell. Here's the Lord's Prayer, which is not essentially sort of African style, but it's from African Sanctus by David Fanshaw. That was the Lord's Prayer from African Sanctus by David Fanshaw, whom I've also met and who loves to tell, well, loved to tell his stories because he's also passed on now. Uh, I'm talking to Rob Kasky, who's my guest in People of Note. And Rob, I just picked up on something there. When, when you were talking about Sudan and um, the Egyptian campaigns and the Sudanese campaigns, do you tell the stories there sometimes, in situ, or do you tell them here? Richard, I largely tell them here. More often I tell them in England, because this is such an integral part of British military history. I have guided two trips to the Sudan where interested folk have wanted to visit the Sudan for archaeological reasons and for uh, British military history reasons. But the difficulties with travel in the Sudan in terms of a driver and a guide, permissions to move around, the controls that the police exert over all visiting tourists and so forth make it almost impossible. My last trip there was in 2016. We were there for six days, and the average daily temperature was 45 degrees centigrade. Wow. It really is a very difficult place to visit. I would say that folks visiting the Sudan, it's far more of an experience than it is a holiday or a break of any sort. <laughs> I've enjoyed my time there enormously, but you're always on edge, and I'm always quite relieved to get to the airport to fly out. It's one of those sort of places, and I guess as a younger man with Kingsley Holgate when we traveled through the Sudan and had a number of issues, guns pulled on us and so forth, there was an edginess that really appealed to us. But as you get older and you get wiser and you become a bit more conservative and cautious, I believe, and you have responsibilities, the edginess that appealed to me in my late 20s no longer appeals. And I want to tell you the Sudan, although I've been there a number of times and have a deep interest in it, is not really an easy or safe place to travel. Yeah. Well, but it seems you choose quite a few not easy and unsafe places to travel because, I mean, when you read the stories about Antarctica and the travel there, uh, you know, many people died in their attempts. I know it's easier now because we've got, I guess, ships and huts to stay in. But they're incredible stories. And since you were talking about temperatures of 45, I think uh, your next choice of music is very appropriate. It's Bat Out of Hell. <laughs> that was Bat Out of Hell by Meatloaf, the choice of Rob Kasky, who's my guest in People of Note. Well, Rob, you certainly choose out-of-the-way places, and I'm very interested to hear you say that you go to tell these stories in the UK. And I have to ask this question, do they not have storytellers of their own or are South Africans in a class of their own in this field? Richard, I think it would be very presumptuous and arrogant to say that South Africans are perhaps in a class of their own in this field. I certainly don't think that is the case. But there is a tremendous value attached to having what I would call, for want of a better word, the real deal. And the fact that I do battlefield tours regularly, it's my day job, I do battlefield tours weekly, increases my credibility to share stories of these battlefields to the average British person who may come to a talk in the UK. They also, I think, like our accent. They like the fact that part of my branding is to dress as I dress on the battlefields with an open neck shirt and shorts and a stick. And the fact that I do regular expeditions, pre-COVID, obviously, annually, into the Arctic and the Antarctic also brings me a certain authenticity and credibility in terms of telling the stories. They have enormous resources and fantastic experts on Scott and Shackleton and Amundsen. But a lot of those folks tend to be academic at institutions 
or they may work at the Scott Polar Institute in Cambridge and are not actively involved in expeditions to the Antarctic seasonally every year. And I think that there's something in that really that gives one an edge in terms of a demand by the British public to hear a story from me rather than from one of their British counterparts. And the other thing that's very interesting in all this, Richard, is the idea or the appeal of an international speaker. The fact that I go and tell these stories in Britain immediately makes me an international speaker in their eyes. And the embarrassing part about it all is that I'm probably better known as a speaker and a storyteller in the UK than I am here, largely because of David having done the groundwork, me carrying on with stories of the Anglo-Zulu War, and then expanding it into tales of the Arctic, the Antarctic, and the Sudan. And we have a wonderful following in the UK, and I love our regular lecture tours to the UK. But somewhere in all that really lies the answer, and I don't think it's got anything to do with the fact that we have an edge as storytellers over the local British people. Yeah. Well, uh, your next choice of music is really about the African diaspora. It's by Johnny Clegg, and it's called Scatterlings of Africa. What a beautiful song that is, Scatterlings of Africa. Johnny Clegg. Glorious piece of music. Glorious, wonderful piece of music. And it's the choice of Rob Caskey, who's my guest in People of Note. And, uh, Rob, I've just been reading myself. You, you talked about Antarctic, the story uh, which Apsley Cherry Garrard wrote about his visit to uh, the Antarctic uh, when he, it's called the worst journey in the world. And I, I can imagine that it was probably the worst journey in the world because he and a couple of uh, of his uh, compatriots down there had to go in midwinter to try and get some emperor penguin eggs. That was an extraordinary story. Well, it certainly is. And it's made all the more extraordinary by the fact that absolutely Cherry Garrard really hailed from a landed gentry family who had a lovely family estate called Lama outside of Wheat Hampstead in Hertfordshire. And he applied to go on Scott's expedition and offered a sponsorship of a thousand pounds to the expedition. And Scott initially did not accept him to be part of the expedition. And absolutely Cherry Garrard graciously said that his offer of the sponsorship remained in place whether he went or did not go to Antarctica. And at the 11th hour, Scott chose absolutely Cherry Garrard to join the expedition to Antarctica. He clearly was an extremely amiable, affable young man, I think able physically, but he had a major issue in poor eyesight. So he wore very thick glasses. And the zoologist and the doctor on the trip was a man called Edward Wilson, who hailed from Cheltenham. And Edward Wilson, who everyone called Uncle Bill and they adored him, was an accomplished zoologist. And Edward Wilson believed that emperor penguins that breed in the middle of the Antarctic winter might provide zoologists with the link between ancient reptiles and modern birds. And he became obsessed with the idea that if he could collect emperor penguin eggs at a certain stage in the embryonic development, he could prove this link between ancient reptiles and modern birds. Now their trip across to Cape Crozier from the hut at Cape Ross on the Ross Sea is 60 miles, 96 kilometers in the depths of the Antarctic winter. It is the most extraordinary story of human endeavor, character, tenacity, and fortitude. Well, absolutely, Cherry Garrard broke some of the eggs that he was carrying in his mitts, trying to get them back to their tent. Their tent blew away. They had penguin blubber that spluttered out of a pan and some of it entered into Dr. Wilson's eyes, nearly blinding him. I don't want to dominate this program with the travails that those men experienced, but it is impossible to describe their suffering. It was so cold that absolutely Cherry Garrard said his spine bent over backwards until he thought it would snap, and his teeth chattered to such an extent that they all cracked right down into the jaw. Well, He never really recovered fully from that journey, along with the fact that he was part of the search party that found Scott, Dr. Edward Wilson, and Bertie Bowers dead in their dark green tent in November of 1912. And Bowers and Wilson had become some of his firmest friends 
after that journey to collect the emperor penguin eggs. And as a result of all this, and the way he was treated quite abominably by the, the Natural History Museum in London when he arrived there with the emperor penguin eggs, and they had no idea of the difficulties that these men had experienced trying to collect those eggs. He wrote that book, The Worst Journey in the World. And I would recommend that if anybody wants to read a book about the realities of Antarctic exploration, Richard, they read The Worst Journey in the World by Absolute Cherry Garrard. It is an absolute peach of literature, in my opinion. Yeah, well, it's a fantastic book. I've read it just recently. I didn't even know of its existence until I was having lunch with a friend, and he said, you should read this book. And, and just to complete your story, uh, when he took these emperor penguin eggs, which they had struggled so hard to get to the Natural History Museum, one of the officials there said, what do you think this is, an egg shop? I mean, he was really horrified by that. But here's your next choice, which is very appropriate, because they went in midwinter when it was completely dark. This is Lady Antebellum with We Own the Night. That was We Own the Night, Lady Antebellum. The choice of Rob Kasky, who's my guest in People of Note tonight. And it's great to have you on the program, Rob, and with all these stories. Uh, just a matter of interest, once uh, David Rattray... Uh, was no more at um, Fugitive's Drift. What happened to the storytelling there? Who tells those stories now? Well, the storytelling baton has been passed along. You know, we were adamant uh, upon David's tragic departure that the product, the stories were larger than the man because there were so many doomsayers who were saying that the business couldn't possibly survive in David's absence. And we really were, say, spare, uh, we were served a double whammy, Richard, because David died in January 2007. And then in 2008, the world economy went into freefall with the economic crash. So we had these two dreadful events affecting us exponentially a year apart. And Karen and I were absolutely adamant that the lodge and the storytelling could survive if it were successfully offered to visitors. So we made it a personal goal of ours to make sure that the business would not die. Eventually, I was doing the storytelling there, aided by a young British fellow called George Irwin, whose father was the Adjutant General of the British Army, a remarkable storyteller and a very able fellow in his own right, along with a delightful Zulu called Joseph Ndima. And then I decided to move on. George had already moved on. He's now a very accomplished IT guy with Amazon and based in Singapore. And Joseph and Dima moved on. And the Rattray's oldest son, Andrew, came back to the lodge. Then the middle son, Douglas, came back to the lodge. And they continued the storytelling along with the help of a lovely Zulu lecturer called Mpiwa and Anzi. And Mpiwa is still there. Andrew has moved on down to the Cape. But Douglas Rattray... Mpiwa Ntanzi, and a remarkable new lecturer called Brian Mube. So the three of them, one uh, South African, Douglas, and the other two local Zulus, eminently South African, they share the storytelling duties there, and long may it last, because it certainly seems to be going very well. Well, long may it last, because it's an amazing story of uh, fortitude, bravery on all sides. And uh, very appropriately, your next choice is Johnny Clegg's Impi. That was the famous song Impi by Johnny Clegg, who was a fluent Zulu speaker himself. Uh, Rob, just a matter of interest, do you speak Zulu? Richard, thankfully I do. I wouldn't say that I'm fluent in the language. It's a very complicated language. But I was lucky enough to play with little Zulu kids growing up and had a Zulu nursemaid. So I spoke Zulu alongside English growing up. And it's a great aid in this job because the average Brit who comes out to visit the battlefield is obsessed by the pronunciations and the names, particularly of the regiments and certain of the Zulu individuals. And they can't get their minds and their mouths around words like Kakagile and Umugile and of the Kumwaba people. And to be able to do these things authentically as a white man for them on the battlefields and in conversation with local Zulus is a huge advantage. So yes, I speak conversational Zulu. I wouldn't say that my Zulu is fluent, but I'm very pleased to be able to speak Zulu. Well, it's a great advantage in your job. And we're going to play your next choice of music now. And then I want to talk to you about 
actually what it is about storytelling and the fact that it, it's sort of all in the mind. It's like theater of the mind. But let's hear some music first. This is Celine Dion and Power of Love. That was Celine Dion and Power of Love, the choice of Rob Kasky, who's my guest in People of Note. That's the program you're listening to on Classic 1027. It's broadcast every Sunday from 6 to 8 p.m. And in it, we talk to someone who is a person of note and listen to music of their choice. And my guest tonight is Rob Kasky, and he's a storyteller. Rob, what is it about storytelling? Because I assume when you're out at Isandlwana or in uh, the Sudan or Antarctica or wherever it is, you can't so easily use visual images other than what is around you when you're telling the story. So what is it about storytelling that is so powerful? Richard, I think there are many aspects about storytelling that make it so powerful. The irony of it is I think that the job of storytellers and the appeal of storytelling has increased markedly in the last 20 to 30 years because of the flood of entertainment options open to our species as human beings in terms of um, home theatres, 3D theatres, IMAX, everything that's available on the internet, the issues of various TV programs and so forth. And I think as human beings, we are exposed to storytelling at a young age by our parents and others, either telling us stories or reading us stories. And the imagination of young people is enormous. And they love being carried along in the theater of their imagination by a story. And then we seem to go through a lull in our lives where everything becomes incredibly statistical, analytical, everything has to be clear, black and white, and so forth. And then as we move along, we realize that there is this innate desire in us to be carried along by nothing more than the power of a story well told in the theater of our imagination. And the imagination is an incredibly powerful thing and a remarkable resource available to human beings. And for folks to be carried along in the theater of their imagination by a story, I think reminds them firstly of their childhood, and secondly, releases feel-good hormones in terms of endorphins and hormones like cortisol that make people feel good, where you're not stimulated by visual images, music, or anything else, but simply by the power of the spoken word in the theater of one's imagination. And I think somewhere in all that lies today the resurgence in terms of an interest and an appeal in storytelling. Yeah, I'm sure that is so. And it's very interesting, actually, because I do, well, I did before COVID, quite a lot of concerts for children. And recently in, say, I mean, I've been doing them for 40 years now, but in the years, uh, earlier years, kids were quite happy to sit and listen to the music. Now they're much more restless. They like to have some visual images to go with it. So very often we put uh, ballet dancers or actors or gymnasts or something with the music. And in fact, you, the, the storyteller, have to do all of that because not only do you tell the story, but you have to sort of act it out as well. Let's listen to your next choice of music and then you can tell us about your particular style of storytelling. This is Shania Twain. Well, it's called Nobody Needs to Know, but Everybody Needs to Know. Here it comes. That was Shania Twain, Nobody Needs to Know, the choice of Rob Kasky, my guest in the program tonight. Rob, do you have a particular style of storytelling? And if so, what is it? Well, Richard, it's very interesting your comment prior to that Shania Twain song, Nobody Needs to Know, regarding the challenge that you are having now with children in terms of having to give them more stimulation alongside of the music. And I think that is the challenge because entertainment options have become so abundant, we are now being pressured to offer particularly youngsters more in terms of stimulation to keep them engaged and to keep them stimulated. And thankfully, the pendulum swings and that once again tends, in my experience, to change as they get older. Now, for me, in terms of my storytelling style, I think that a good story is a lot like a good piece of music. It needs to have cadence and rhythm and volume. It needs to have repetition. And there needs to be a flow 
between what is sad and poignant and what is humorous, entertaining and lighthearted. And one needs somehow to navigate a way through to keep the audience engaged and hopefully sitting on the edge of their seat. I'm fortunate in that I have a fairly strong voice and I use my voice, I hope, to good effect in terms of telling a story and I'll whisper to pull people in. And then I will shout to give them a fright or to get their attention or to startle them. And my storytelling style really is this. I want to present to people a series of little stage plays as I imagine the story to have taken place in my mind. So I imagine myself looking at a situation. I tell the story regularly of Harry Volater killing the lion with a knife in 1903 in the Kruger National Park when he was attacked on horseback by two lions. Now, to tell that story successfully, I try to imagine how it was that dark winter night. And I try to imagine describing what Harry Volater was going through to my audience. And I always tell folks who want to become storytellers or to become successful at storytelling that they need to have what I call a fully loaded bottom drawer. And the point that I'm making in that, Richard, is this. When one is telling a story and you realize that the story you are telling is not engaging with or resonating with the audience, you need to try and move away from that as quickly as possible and interject with another story that hopefully brings them back, engages them and brings them back onto your side. And if you haven't got alternatives that you can draw into your story, if the story you're telling is not working with the audience, you really are in a very difficult position. And I always say to folks that one's first three or four sentences when you start with an audience are crucial because they create in the audience or the listeners the desire to engage and to listen. And then when you finish a story, your finish is crucial because that is what you're remembered for. They always remember how you finished telling your story and perhaps the message you wanted conveyed by dint of that story. And somewhere in all that lies my style, particularly of storytelling. And I really am very interested in human beings, Richard. So I really like to believe that I tell stories about human beings rather than tell stories about history. And men and women, young and old alike, are very interested in human beings and they relate to stories about human beings. And that's my hook. That's my catch to try and bring people in because I'm telling them stories about human beings and want them to imagine themselves in similar circumstances to the human beings in my story. Very good. That answered my question perfectly. And we're going to hear your next choice of music now, which is Take a Chance by Bonnie Tyler. That was Take a Chance, Bonnie Tyler. And I think often in your storytelling, you do have to take a chance and go down certain avenues. And I so well remember David Rattray's storytelling where he could go out of the story, just like what you've been describing, go out of the story and tell about something else and come back exactly where he left off the story to start with. And the other thing I remember so clearly about his talks was emotion. Our children were quite young when we went, so they were not listening to the story. They were playing up Isandrana somewhere. And when they came down, everybody of the adults who was listening to the story, well, I can't say everybody, but most of them were weeping because the story was so powerful. And he, somehow he touched emotions. And I think that's a really key thing of storytelling is being able to tap into people's emotions. Have you got something to say about that? Well, Richard, absolutely. That is vital. And I'm sorry not to have responded appropriately in that regard. I think that emotion in the story is absolutely vital, along with the enthusiasm and the passion with which you tell the story. And David and I often used to make the point that I think to tell the sort of stories that we share successfully, you need to be a fairly passionate and emotional human being. And that comes with its own compromises and sacrifices. But back to the story you, though the point you made about David in a story, moving off at a tangent and coming back to the very point he'd left guests at, we always talk in a story about the spine and then the ribs or those subtangents that come off that spine 
And it's all very well to move off at a tangent, but you need to bring your audience back to the very point at which you left them. Otherwise, they left hanging. Yeah. And they immediately wonder, when is he going to get back to the point he left us at? So I'm delighted that you picked up on both those crucial points to successful storytelling in terms of the emotion required, along with moving off at a tangent and coming back to the very point at which you left your audience. And David Rattray was, I would say, the best in the world at doing so. Yeah, yeah he, was, he was very good. Now, your next choice of music perhaps doesn't have so much to do with, well, I, I guess it does have a story behind it, but it's Shania Twain, Feel Like a Woman. That was Shania Twain with Feel Like a Woman. Uh, is there a story behind some of these choices, Rob? Or do you just like well, Shania you know, Twain? Richard, there are a number of stories behind all this. I consider myself to be unusually unmusical. I know very little about music. <laughs> I consider myself a very poor appreciator of music and feel that I'm a bit of a pleb really in that regard. But when I traveled around the world, I did quite an extensive round the world trip that lasted for four years. I spent a lot of time working in Canada with young farmers and we used to go to regular concerts and rodeos. And the buzzword on everyone's lips at that time was Shania Twain. She was at the height of her career a quite gorgeous woman, and we used to play Shania Twain almost ceaselessly uh, driving across the country to various rodeos and shows and concerts. So Shania Twain is a very important um, memory for me in terms of those wonderful days working in Canada. And some of the songs that she sings, I love the beat of the music, more than the words specifically. I've got poor hearing, and quite often in these songs I battle to hear the words that are being sung but I'm very interested in the beat of the music. And uh, I am intrigued really now at the miscellany of the music I have presented you with and how beautifully you're weaving these pieces of music into our little conversation, <laughs> which I'm enjoying so much. <laughs> well, some of them are quite a challenge, but we're going to see how we fit them in <laughs> later on. But it sounds as though there must be a story in Canada too. What were you doing with rodeos? Well, um, I thankfully wasn't doing anything with rodeos outside of being a spectator. And I've always been enormously impressed by the skill of the chaps who do the roping, the chaps who ride the Broncos, and particularly the fellows who ride the bulls, which is an extremely, extremely dangerous thing. But Richard, interesting that when I was at university and my travel plans were coalescing in my mind, I had three major objectives that I wanted to try and achieve traveling. The one was to travel across Africa from Cape Town to Cairo. The second was to walk in the high Himalayas in Nepal and Tibet. And the third was to drive the Alaskan Canadian Highway, which was built uh, in eight months in early 1942 to link the lower 48 states with Alaska with a road that linked Alaska with Russia over the Bering Strait because Russia and America were allies at the time. And it had to be far enough inland to avoid the attentions of Japanese aircraft carriers after what had happened at Pearl Harbor in December of 1941. So I drove the Alaskan-Canadian Highway. I've always been intrigued at the expanses in both Canada and Alaska. And I always wanted to work on the big farms in Canada, what they call the plains in, Alaska, in Canada. So when I came back from having driven the Alaskan-Canadian Highway, I took the ferry system from Alaska all the way down that west coast and got off at of Prince Rupert. And I drove across Canada to the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. And I found work on a big farm near a town called Lloydminster. And it was there that I met up with a lot of other young farmers who were working on family farms and youngsters my age who were working on farms for a bit of money. And of course, rodeos and concerts were great entertainment. I want to tell you, it's so flat there that if you lie down on the road, you can see what's going to happen next week, Tuesday. <laughs> so there was very little entertainment. And we used to drive in these big V8 trucks and go off to concerts and rodeos every weekend if we could. It really was our staple entertainment. So this must have been somewhere around the summer of 69, maybe. But there it is. This is Brian Adams, summer of 69. Well, I'm not sure it was 69, but it, it's a good story anyway. Summer of 69. That was Brian Adams, the choice of... Rob Klasky, who's my guest in People of Note. Now, Rob, I have an important question for you, and this is your storytelling over the last 12 months must have been reduced 
considerably. So what have you done in its place? Well, tell us about the storytelling well, first. Has it, has it been hit badly? Oh, Richard, it's been hit absolutely catastrophically. I was on an expedition ship in Antarctica, and I got off on the 17th of March of last year and flew home, got home on the 19th of March of last year to find that all of our work for the remainder of 2020 had been cancelled as a result of the lockdown and COVID. And at that point, we were unaware that the cancellations would continue into 2021. Now, I have very good friends here in Howick who've got a garden path. And at the start of the garden path, we step off the veranda onto the path. They have a flagstone on which lie the words, don't complain about the darkness if you haven't lit a candle. And I got back from Antarctica exhausted and had to recover from the jet lag and the realization of the year ahead with all of our work cancelled. Everything, battlefield tours, local tours, conference talks, everything, UK lecture tour, the work's cancelled, including future ship work on expedition ships. And I decided, right, in this time of darkness, what were we going to do? What was our lighting a candle going to comprise? And with the help of Karen's oldest son, who is very accomplished in the computer and IT world, he recommended us trying to tell stories online. So we launched on the 8th of April last year, literally a week after lockdown began, a storytelling program on a platform called Patreon, where I tell a story a week on Patreon for listeners and subscribers who can buy a monthly subscription or an annual subscription. And on the basis of that Patreon subscription and the Patreon income, we began to try and devise ways to survive. I then converted one end of a study into a little quasi home studio for the recording of the Patreon stories, but also that I could tell stories online. And people have been kind enough to support me, having me tell stories for dinners, birthday parties, celebrations of life. Even some conferences have been held online and I've been asked to tell stories at those conferences. Now, the South Africans, thankfully, are a fairly rebellious crowd. And I have found that even through lockdown, Folks were finding life so difficult with the issue of cabin fever that they were prepared still to travel to the battlefields. So I was able to continue with some small local battlefield tours to the local battlefields all of last year and well into this year. And we continue the battlefield tours that remain popular, thankfully. And I also sell products. I've got USBs, DVDs and books of the stories I tell that we sell online and I use a courier to send them to people around the country. And somewhere in all that, Richard, we've been able to survive this year thus far. It has been extremely difficult. It's been hit catastrophically by COVID, but we've had to make um, rapid adjustments to our business model and what we do. And thankfully, it seems to be uh, working well enough for us, and we are very grateful for it. And where do people find you? Just tell us where the websites are and so on. Well, my website is as in my name, www.robkaski.com. Kaski spelled C-A-S-K-I-E. And if folks are interested in the online storytelling on Patreon, they can uh, look at Patreon, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, backslash Rob Kaski. And uh, somewhere in all that, along with my Facebook page, which is just listed under my name, I would be delighted if folks wanted to learn more about my products and what I do, my storytelling, or be in touch for any other reason. So there you are. I I'm going to give those again at the end of the program, but I think the, the main one is www.robkaski.com. And just tell me what that flagstone said again. The flagstone has on it the words, don't complain about the darkness if you haven't lit a candle. So here comes orchestral movements in the dark, forever live and die. That's a great saying, light a candle. That's what we've all had to do in this rather dark period of COVID. That was orchestral movements in the dark, forever live and die. The choice of Rob Kasky, my guest in People of Note. Rob, I think you've also had some experience of uh, royalty. Didn't you have to go to the palace somewhere to give a talk once? <laughs> oh, Richard, 
I've been very, very lucky, you know, and my experiences at Fugitives Drift, we hosted a number of the royal family there, and uh, largely on account of having had uh, royal staff coming to Fugitives Drift, I've been invited to speak at a number of the palaces over in Britain, and invariably there's a story involved in each of those visits, and uh, they have been really milestone events in my speaking career thus far. And, uh, yeah, because I... Actually, our listeners don't know, but I met you recently in the Midlands in Natal, and you, you told a story there of arriving at the palace in shorts, I think you said. Well, that was a, that was a, a wonderful occasion because invariably the staff who invite me to do these talks want me to do the talks as I always do in shorts and open neck shirt with a stick, as I explained. But quite often the protocol at the palaces are such that I have to arrive in a suit and then get changed into shorts and open neck shirt, deliver my talk, then get back into a suit to depart. But I was doing a talk at St. James Palace in London, hosted by Prince Harry himself, for about 220 guests. It was a black tie event, so everyone was there in a beautiful black dinner jacket. And I had the permission of the organizers. It was an event organized for Helpful Heroes, of which Prince Harry is a patron that I could arrive in shorts and open neck shirt because I'd go straight on stage and do my talk and then depart. Now, it was jolly interesting because all these folks were standing there in their black suits looking like penguins, emperor penguins, with their beautifully clad woman at their sides. And amongst the guests was Jeremy Clarkson, who we've had a bit to do with over time. And of course, all my friends, particularly those interested in cars at Top Gear, wanted to meet Jeremy Clarkson. And then the line started to file into the venue. And in the porch, in the entrance atrium, was a security desk, and the security were checking each person coming in, and there was a whole set of protocols that had been attained to make sure that folks were safe to come, and you could only get in if your name was on the list. And I got to the desk, Richard, and this chap dressed in all his security clothing with his little beep 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 in his ear, says to me, step aside, sir. And so I stepped aside. And they are so polite and so genteel and so proper, the British, particularly the palace security staff. It turned out that my name was not included on the list of guests for that event. <laughs> I've got to say this, that it was at the end of a lecture tour. I was exhausted. I'd done 16 talks and 19 nights. This was the cherry on the top the final uh, lecture in the whole series, and it was going to be the grand evening. Well, it turns out that all the organizers were inside the venue. We couldn't get hold of them. And I began to feel a little bit irritated, for want of a better word. So I said to the security staff, I said, listen, the car that brought me here, where we're staying in West London, is still outside. I'm going to go back to the car. And I'm going to find my way back to my hosts in West London. And you can sort out how the evening proceeds without the speaker and talk to the organizers inside who have not included my name on the list of guests. Anyway, Karen was standing beside me. She was embarrassed at the lifting of my voice level because of my irritation. And a whole lot of friends stepped forward out of the line and they said to the security staff, really? Do you think that this guy would gate crash an event like this, dressed as he is with a stick, with his name emblazoned on his shirt, if he wasn't the speaker? And I want to tell you that it's going to be the end of a great evening if the speaker leaves, because he is the reason we are here. <laughs> anyway, eventually it was sorted out, and I was allowed to enter into St. James's Palace, and we stood in this reception room at one end, and Prince Harry, looking very dapper in a pinstripe suit, comes up the steps at the far end and he walks straight across to me with his hand outstretched and he said, I can see you've dressed for the occasion. Well, it really broke the ice and we had a fantastic evening thereafter. Wonderful. But I want to tell you, getting into the palace and starting it off was quite tricky. I'm sure. And you were talking about all the well-dressed ladies there. Here's Chris de Berg with Lady in Red. There we go. That was Chris de Berg with Lady in Red, the choice of Rob Kasky, who's my guest in People of Note. 
And on that high note, we're sort of coming towards the end of the program now. And I just want to give you those details again, because, Rob, one of the other things you do, we've got a short while left, is you do work in the corporate field as well, don't you? Richard, I do a lot of work in the corporate field, and it's work that I love. The corporate field, obviously, storytelling really appeals to them. I think that most folks realize that if you can contain your message within a story, it's always better remembered and it's better absorbed by the listeners and your colleagues at work. And I do an awful lot of storytelling for corporates where we tell a story which is entertaining in its own right, but more importantly, extract lessons that the audience can learn from the stories of yesteryear. You know, the, the issues of leadership, strategy, communication, use of resources and so forth, are remarkable and emanate from all these stories. And more recently, the issues of resilience, of grit, of disruption, of changing responses to changing circumstances with the COVID challenge upon us are remarkable. So I do a lot of work for corporates. It's work I love. It's work I respect and value. And they, in turn, love the lessons that they can use in the modern working place out of these stories of yesteryear. Yeah, and, and fortunately, uh, most of those are probably done online now, So, and you're well set up for that. So that's a, a really good thing. So let's just give your details again. It's www.robkaskie.com, or there's another site, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, backslash Rob Kasky. That's where you can find the information. And Rob, I'd be interested to know if people do contact you. You can either contact Rob to do a talk for you online. And Rob, I'm not going to talk about finances now. You can deal with that if if people phone you. Uh, but we've sort of come towards the end of the program now. And I'm sure that uh, many listeners have been uh, gripped by your stories. Uh, not that we've had actual stories, but your mode of telling stories and the fact that you have a lot of stories to tell. And I'm just going to say again, because uh, I've got them here in front of me, that there are stories about Isandlwana, Rourke's Drift, Flickering Embers is a sort of miscellany of stories, the Anglo-Boer War, Spionkop, uh, Roald Amundsen, Robert Falcon Scott, The Race to the Pole, Going South with Shackleton, uh, Lines in the Ice, uh, the, the Franklin, the story about the Northwest Passage, and of course the Sudan. I find the Sudan a very interesting story. I've read several books on that. So we're coming to the end. Now we're right near the end. We've got one more choice of music, which is perfect. This is literally perfect because we're at the end of the program. It's Ed Sheeran. That was Ed Sheeran with his song Perfect. And really that does perfectly round off the evening, Rob. I just want to say thank you to you very much for being on the program. I hope you've enjoyed it. Richard, I've enjoyed it enormously. Speaking with you has been so easy. You've led our conversation beautifully. And if you have the time to include it, I want to tell you that Ed Sheeran and his delightful wife, Terry, were on an expedition with us in the Antarctic. They were fortunate enough on that expedition to fall pregnant. Their little daughter has one of her middle names, the word Antarctic. And I have always been impressed by his music. I love that song, Perfect. And I'm so glad we ended our little chat together with it, Richard. Thank you sincerely for the invitation. I've enjoyed this enormously. It's a great pleasure. And thank you to you at home for listening. Uh, until next time, from all of us here at Classic 1027, we wish you a very good night.